Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. I have a very special guest today. His name is Albert Lanier. Comes to us from Hawaii. And he was recommended to me by Chuck Ocelli. And he has a long journalistic career. We talked a little bit in the pre-show, kind of about his background and his writing. He's been uh, writing for decades now as a journalist on a variety of subjects. But a particular subject that I'm curious about and that he has a lot of knowledge about is the strange death of somebody who was very young, 23 years old, when he died and was found dead in Hollywood. His name was Bobby Fuller. And he's just one of the many strange deaths of Hollywood. That, And this is kind of one of those people who the facts don't add up to kind of what the government said. And uh, he can talk more about that. So Albert Lanier, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Well, thanks for having me, William. Glad to be here. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard you or may not have heard you with Chuck Ocelli, some of your other shows, can you talk about your background? Talk about some of the journalistic stuff that you've done in the past. And then what led you to this story about the strange death of Bobby, Bobby Fuller? Okay. So let's start out first with my background. Um, I am a print journalist and freelance writer by trade. I was a freelance writer and freelance journalist for 22 years, from about 1994 to about 2017, when I retired in February of 2017, with the exception of about maybe four months in 2004 when I quit the business. Um, so I was largely a freelance writer and journalist, 22 years. Um, I also did other kinds of writing. You know, I did bit of ad copy here and I did what I would call client work or what I used to call um, actually private projects uh, client work Um, and basically my journalistic work and my freelance work uh, was for magazines and newspapers so I wrote primarily for publications for freelancers it varies sometimes so publications I wrote for include Honolulu Weekly uh, Pacific Business News and um, Asian Week um, Edible Hawaiian Islands, which I won an award for. Um, also, various other magazines, uh, they vary types, Hawaii Film and Video, Hawaii Skin Diver. Um, let me see. Um, what island are you on other in Hawaii? What island are you I'm on Oahu. I'm on Oahu, which is where the capital Honolulu is. I live in Honolulu at present. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, um, like I said, I... Like I said, I wrote, I was a, as a freelancer, I wrote primarily for publications, so magazines and newspapers. So I was a magazine writer, newspaper journalist, and uh, freelancer. And I did other kinds of freelance work. Um, like I said, 22 years. Um, I'm probably known in regards to being a journalist in terms of YouTube or in terms of even being uh, interviewed on podcasts. Initially, I got interviewed over an article I wrote for Honolulu Weekly in 2008 called Variable Wind Trade, which was about First Wind, a uh, wind farm that was looking, uh, sorry, a producer wind farms and a wind turbines that was looking to do a wind farm on the island of Molokai. And I had compared their efforts to what they had done in New York State in a town called Cohocton, New York. So and I think I did another article about wind power. I think it was called, uh, uh, I can't remember, remember the titles of my articles, but I did a follow-up to that also, kind of follow-up to about wind power for Honolulu Weekly. And that's, that's where I started doing interviews. So I started being interviewed on radio shows and right. podcasts, primarily like upstate New York was where I started with that. And then I started being interviewed about other subjects. And so I've been on talk shows, podcasts, radio shows since 2009, really. Um, some of them include the Ocelli Effect and some that are not around anymore or maybe in other areas like Outside the Box, uh, TV News Lies, various other shows. And I was also on the Opperman Report, which I believe uh, you were involved with. Yeah, for about three years. That's right. Yeah, that's why I did an episode of the Opperman Report where I talked about Gary Webb and uh, sort of uh, what happened to his career as a journalist after he did his uh, Dark Alliance expose. Right. Yeah, that's a very important story. So you've covered a lot of stuff. You covered that. You covered some strange story about that I wasn't familiar with about a so-called kind of lost at sea story, right, that happened in the Pacific Ocean. 
you've covered some right uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, the scene of yeah that ended up making national news because the two women on that boat on that uh, ship were rescued by the U.S. Navy. Yeah, that's a real. That's another kind of strange one. It's really strange. So it's just a strange story. Like where were they? Were they really lost at sea? Right, something like that. Well, yeah, it was weird because the details they mentioned a Force Eleven storm and tiger sharks that were gigantic were absolutely nonsensical. It didn't make sense. Didn't really add up. So there were things about that that just really were uh, there were non sequiturs. That was kind of illogical. Yeah, that that was a really strange one. Um, I got interested in that by reading an AP article about it. I went, wait, what? <laughs> I was literally, wait, what? But they were supposedly lost at sea for a long time, right? It wasn't like a weekend or seven days or something. Like they no, 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 no. It was a while. Yeah, because they were supposedly going to, I'm trying to remember, was somewhere in the Pacific. They, they had this voyage they were making, and then um, they wound up getting rescued by the Navy. Uh, that's a whole, that's an episode onto itself, <laughs> and I've been interviewed about that. It, it's strange. It's a saga. Right? It was yeah, strange. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And what other things have you written before or talked about other than leading up to this story about Bobby Fuller? Well, after I retired, I, I decided to write a blog for the first time for Medium.com, and I just ended my blog this past uh, February, so... Uh, four years. It was a nice run. I'd never written a blog before. I had only written like newspaper articles and magazine articles. And uh, my article, um, that was where I wrote my piece about called And the Law Won. Uh, that was my fourth anniversary piece because I would write a piece on an anniversary. So I also wrote pieces. Generally, the blog was about oh, uh, media and current events, but I would write an anniversary blog for every anniversary. And so I, I also wrote pieces about, because um, I wrote uh, like profiles on people like, uh, or critiques, I should say, people like Alex Jones, uh, Megan Kelly, um, Tucker Carlson, uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, and I also wrote about D.B. Cooper. I wrote a piece called, I think it was called Hang In With Mr. Cooper. Um, about yeah, D.B. Cooper. Cooper. And of course, I wrote about Bobby Fuller. Um, so... Yeah, and the last one I wrote was sort of a, how do I put it, a revealing one. I basically admitted, and I, I did this on Chuck Ocelli's show as well. We did an episode where I talked about this. I basically came forward and admitted I was a JFK skeptic, and which is something I never thought I would do, um, but something I, I admitted to. And the reason I say that was, because I worked as a freelance journalist, uh, writing for newspapers and writing for magazines, uh, and working in media, I never thought that I would publicly state that I was skeptical about the what happened to JFK. So, skeptical. Um, I did. I think a piece. The last piece I wrote was called um, "Rush to Judgment 2.0." Um, skeptical and so can you hear me those were some of the things that i wrote in my blog which was after i had retired um so where we left off i kind of did a brief intro to the death of bobby fuller at 23 in 1966 can you kind of talk and go back to where you became interested in the story of bobby fuller sure i can talk about that for a minute there i thought it was maybe the music industry being nefarious perhaps Nah. Maybe. Maybe. I'm being mischievous here. It's kind of odd because um, uh, before I get to that, I was actually on Chuck Ocelli's show and I was discussing, I don't, I'm sure you've heard of uh, the death of uh, freelancer Danny Casalero and the whole yes. Inslaw octopus. Yeah. yeah I was sure. talking about the Inslaw octopus and at one point I was knocked off the air. Wow. And I think that interview is still up on YouTube. People can check it out. But for some reason, I got knocked off the air for about, I don't know, a few minutes. And we got back on, but it was really strange. I had never experienced anything like that in the time that I had done interviews on shows or anything like that. So 
Well, this one, this strange uh, excerpt of uh, you not being able to hear me will stay on YouTube. So I know it's strange, right? Strange. Yeah. <coughs> That's why I say I don't know. I don't either. Let's get back yeah. to Bobby Fuller. Let's get back to Bobby. How was I interested in Bobby? Well, I think it really stemmed from the old Unsolved Mysteries show hosted by Robert Stack. I had actually seen a segment on Bobby Fuller on Unsolved Mysteries, and that's how I found out about it. And I think that's what got me interested. If I had to go back and see, you know, look at what was the genesis for my interest in Bobby Fuller or the Bobby Fuller case, I think it was Unsolved Mysteries. And it's interesting. I learned or saw quite a few segments on cases that I've ended up uh, being interviewed on shows about and, and written about. So that show is kind of instrumental in some respects. Quite interesting. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting show. I mean, they actually did do some real investigative journalism. I mean, it's unique, unique in that regard. Um, so that show got you interested. And then what happened? Well, um, I guess I filed it away in the back of my head for quite some time. And then I think it was after I retired in 2017, I wrote the blog, as I mentioned previously. I wrote a blog for Medium.com for about four years, mostly about media and, and um, current events and news. And I wrote a piece about Bobby Fuller. That was my fourth anniversary article. I wrote a piece every anniversary of my blog. That was entitled And the Law Won, which dealt with uh, the Bobby Fuller uh, case and the death of Bobby Fuller. And so I think it was kind of having this in the back of my mind, having seen the Unsolved Mysteries show probably over 20 years ago. And then when I retired uh, more recently, I decided, no, I think I'll write about this. And I've been interviewed once or twice about it elsewhere, but it uh, stood as a... Uh, fascinating, intriguing mystery to me. And I don't think it ever kind of left me at some point in my unconscious. Right. So it's a strange death. There's a lot of really weird deaths in L uh, L.A. of people. Oh, yeah. Young people murdered, found in cars, stars who... Right. Nobody would think they would commit suicide, commit suicide, right. disappearances. So Yeah, I used to live in L.A., yeah, I used to live in L.A. I lived in L.A. twice. And so this may be another reason, because when you mentioned, I know you live in L.A. now, um, that may be another reason why I got interested in the Bobby Fuller, because I, at point, the last time I lived in L.A., I was in West Hollywood. So, um, and I know Bobby died in Hollywood. He had an apartment in Hollywood. Um, so... That may be another reason why. And I think the final reason why may have to do with the music industry and, again, the strange deaths in the music industry. Um, last year, I was on a couple of shows talking about musician uh, and businessman Sam Cooke, who was a uh, uh, real hit maker in the, in the 60s, and his death. Um, and I think what I see are some odd, very strange, and extremely peculiar deaths of musicians and people in the music yeah. industry, which I believe have something to do with the industry itself in some way, shape, yes. or form. I totally agree. Totally agree. Jimi Hendrix's death, uh, he, uh, Brad Schreiber, an author I've talked to who wrote an autobiography of Hendrix, said he was murdered, given an overdose of drugs. And I'm pretty sure Cobain was murdered too, but that, that's just a that's a very short right. twenty seven. Right, sorry. It, it's funny when I was thinking about this case. Another case that I haven't been interviewed about, but I probably will in the future, is the death of Kurt Cobain. And when I look at the Bobby Fuller and sort of the reaction post mortem to his death from official uh, authorities, right, it really ties into the Kurt Cobain case. In some respects, right. The case, the the analysis of the case doesn't make sense that he committed suicide, and it was just after I think his number one song, "I Fought the Law," right, that the Clash did, was just a month before, 
So he was riding high on mm -hmm. like his hit. So he was oh, a yeah. peak at peak part of his musical career. Like the what every right. musician would want. Like my song is oh, on yeah. the radio. He didn't write the song. Well, he was on the escalator towards stardom. There's no doubt about it. He was a rising star. So when you look at this case, it's a matter of a rising star meeting a untimely demise. And both of those joined together really add up to something that I think has been, to my mind, just dis discarded and completely ignored in regards to the actuality of Bobby Fuller's death. We don't really want to deal with the actuality of his death. We want to deal with the fantasy that's been perpetuated by authorities. And I think that's the best way to describe it, is a fantasy. I, I don't know how anyone could take seriously that this man committed suicide, which was the initial ruling in regards to uh, Bobby Fuller. Can you describe how he was found and the circumstances and facts around his death? Sure. Um, now, my understanding, let's take it from that. Uh, he was found uh, in July of 1966. And so what I'll do is I will go back before. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, let me just say that Bobby Fuller was a musician originally raised in El Paso, Texas, came out to L.A. with his band, uh, which became known as the Bobby Fuller Four, and they had uh, a couple of hits. They had a, one really big top ten hit, which was a cover of I Fought the Law, which was written, I believe, by Sonny Curtis. Um, so that cover was a huge hit for Bobby Fuller. He also had a hit with uh, Love's Made a Fool of You, which I believe was a Buddy Holly tune, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Buddy Holly was a hero of uh, Bobby Fuller's. He was a big B Buddy Holly fan. Uh, and I'll admit, so was I. I was a Buddy Holly fan as well. Um, so what happened was that Bobby was at home his mother had come out to L.A. to visit him. So his mother was staying at his apartment, which was in Hollywood, California, I believe on um, uh, Sycamore. Uh, I think it was Sycamore Street, Hollywood. Now, I used to live in West Hollywood, so I'm a little familiar with Hollywood because I used to go into Hollywood to see movies at either restaurants, but I don't recall that street, but it's Sycamore Street in Hollywood. <laughs> So what happened was uh, Bobby's in his apartment um, uh, with his mother and I think of other people. And according to what the story is, he got a phone call sometime in the morning. When precisely, I think varies, but it's sometime early in the wee hours of the morning. I would say either one o'clock or after, but that paid on the time. In any event, Bobby... Um, decided to go out to someone. Um, I, I gather it was the person that called. And so he asked his mother if he could take her um, blue Oldsmobile. So he was driving his mother's car to meet this person. Um, and Bobby was a known, um, he was known to burn the midnight oil. So he's somebody who kept up uh, late hours at night. So he wasn't somebody that generally was an early, early sleeper. Uh, so it wasn't unusual for him to be up. So he had left uh, with his mother's blue Oldsmobile to go see this person. Who the person was has not been identified. Um, I believe even to this day, nobody knows who Bobby went to see or was reported to go to see. Now, uh, by the next day... Um, Bobby's mother was concerned because Bobby hadn't come back. So from, from again, what we understand, um, his mother was constantly on the lookout for that blue Oldsmobile. So she was keeping tabs on that car. And she was keeping tabs, looking outside, looking at the parking lot, checking on that. That's very important in light of what's going to happen. Now, sometime in the afternoon, I believe it was 5 p.m., but in the afternoon, 
the car had a, the car suddenly was in the lot. And I think his mother had gone to check mail. And she saw that the car was in parking space. And she went over to the Blue Oldsmobile and opened it, opened the front door, and was immediately hit by gasoline fumes. And she discovered the body of her son, um, Bobby Fuller. Or should I say his formal name is Robert Gaston Fuller. And that's how Bobby Fuller was found. He was found in parking lot near his apartment in Hollywood. And right in the center of Hollywood, right? So it's literally right around from the walk of fame, you know, the stars and stuff like that. If you're looking mm -hmm. on YouTube, you can see it. It's literally by Man right. Theater or the Chinese Theater. So it's, right. right, that's there. Hollywood Boulevard. I know it well. Um, and it's, you know, Hollywood Boulevard is also where you're going to find Hollywood and Highland, which is where the theater, Dolby Theater, where the Oscars are held. Um, so I know all that well. I've been to Man's Chinese, seen movies there, and been to other parts, even on Hollywood Boulevard. I used to go there on the 776 North Sycamore Avenue. Is the where right. I was found. Right. <clears throat> so the apartment's on Sycamore. He, so the mother finds Bobby. So this is why I said that the mother looking out and looking for the car is important because she eventually made her way over to the car when she saw it in the parking lot and eventually found her son, which is about as bad a way to find out about your offspring having perished as I can think. I mean, I can't think of a worse way to um, find out or discover that your son or daughter is dead than to actually discover them dead. And this is one of the things about this case that bothers me a little bit. Um, it's strange for me because I've been interviewed about true crime cases since 2019. Um, I, and I'm not, a, I'm not somebody who covered crime as a journalist or really wrote about crime, but I ended up being interviewed about true crime cases, I guess from 2019, I had talked about the death of Bob Crane. That's what the first, right. and then I did uh, Bonnie Lee Bakley, uh, the Robert Blake case, which was in Los Angeles. So uh, uh, it's kind of strange that I find myself with true crime, but of all the true crime cases that, that I've come across, uh, this is one of the strangest. And this is one of the cruelest in the fact that Bobby Fuller's mother found him dead in her car. Um, yeah, it's... It, right, but the, the situation of the body was suspicious right from the beginning, right? Oh, yeah. See, this is one of the reasons why I got interested in this case. Again, if I haven't said this, I'll say it again. This has to be one of the strangest celebrity deaths that I've ever come across, that I've ever seen. The fact of the matter is that this young man, he was 23 when he died, was found dead in his mother's car. Now, the circumstances here, and when you, when you look at a coroner's report, as I mentioned in my article, a coroner's report, like official reports, are cold and lifeless. They don't contain any spark of humanity because they're dealing with death when you're talking about a coroner's report, right? So we know in the report, it states, deceased was found lying face down in front seat of car, a gas can one third full, cover open, windows were all rolled up and doors <clears throat> shut, not locked. Keys not in ignition. So those are some of the bare bone facts that were noted in this uh, this autopsy report or noted in reports. It's very interesting because if you look at uh, Bobby Fuller, Fuller was 
according to his brother who came out, uh, who saw him as well. Fuller supposedly had bruises on his arms and his shoulders. His body was soaked in gasoline. So this is one of the strangest things in a very strange case. His body was soaked in gasoline. There was also the gas can that I mentioned, which was next to the front seat, which he was supposedly, which he was lying on, which he was found on. And so there was this gas can, it was half full, about a third full, and that had a spout on its hose, reportedly. And we have this young man who is covered in gasoline for some unknown reason. Supposedly, he also had a finger that was broken. So you add up all this. We have somebody who has a broken finger covered in brute who has a number of bruises on his body supposedly arms shoulder other parts and then is soaked in gasoline in a car he was also in full rigor when he was found so by the time the cops got there it was clear that he was already in an advanced state of rigor meaning rigor mortis what this states is that if he's in rigor mortis, he could not have driven the car to that location, right? Right. So this would obviously indicate that someone else drove the car. So it's clear Bobby was already dead. He's got bruises on him. He's covered in gasoline. Now, this is weird fact number one, covered in gasoline, plus a gasoline can next to it, right? The first thing I would say about this, having addressed it in my article and the law one, is I try to look at things from the lens of logic. I apply logic, reason, and rationality to almost everything I get involved with as much as possible. So, the first thing I think we have to ask is, why was it necessary for him to be covered in gasoline? To burn away or tear, tear away evidence, right? Gasoline. Will okay, that's, stuff, right? that would be your influence, right? That it would be, be possibly to burn him up. So, that would be logical. If that was actually done, right? Or there was an effort to do that. From what I understand, I don't know if there were any matches found. I mean, there was the gasoline can, right? But I don't know if any matches were found um, on the scene there. I don't believe that there was a lighter or some other means in order to light a, you know, light a spark and thus create a fire. So, logically, one would assume, oh, you cover in gasoline, you may want to burn, burn the body up or burn him up. But if that was the intent, why not do it? Why leave the body covered in gasoline, soaked in gasoline? That's right. the weird fact about this case. That he's covered in gasoline, right? But didn't they also find gasoline in his stomach? So somebody poured it down his throat. Is that true? Well, see, the the report that I see, uh, what little I've seen of the report, it notes that the cause of his death was asphyxia due to inhalation of gasoline, right? The supposedly inhaled it. Oh, right. So the, one of the theories was that he was trying to drink gasoline, right? Now- Supposedly, right. Right, but ostensibly that wasn't the case, right? 
Um, we do know that, well, this will get to a larger area, that the obviously ran tox tests and tox screens <coughs> on Bobby Fuller. But if you look at the report, what we see is acute lernicotracheobronchitis, pulmonary edema, minimal. This is under the anatomical summary. Central nervous system, subarachnoid hemorrhage, bilateral, minimal. And of course, the miscellaneous section, decomposition or decomposed body. Um, I would read from the external examination part of this um, report. The body is that of an embalmed, well-developed, uh, well well-nourished Caucasian male appearing the stated age of 23. Body measures 67 inches in length and weighs 127 pounds. The body is of normal size and um, symmetrical, right? Right. So again, one of the things I, I cite that to give people a kind of sense of, so when you deal with true crime, one of the things I want to note is how cases are seen in the context of investigators and coroners and um, other relevant parties. And so I thought it best to read what I could from what I've been able to see of the coroner's report. Because normally what you hear when it talks about Bobby is what I just mentioned before. The details, which are, of course, irrelevant. The deceased was found lying face down in front seat of car, gas can one-third full, cover open, windows were all rolled up, doors shut, not locked, keys not in ignition. So when we look at these details, right, we have him soaked in gasoline, right? And you brought up a point, possibly they wanted to set him on fire. Logical point. But we have to ask the question, if that was the case, why didn't they? We also have to look at what else occurred. We do know reportedly that he had this broken finger, that he had bruises on his body. Supposedly he had a ripped eyebrow. And so what we have to wonder is that there was obviously physical trauma to Bobby Fuller, that he was beaten up that he was hit, that he was physically traumatized in some way, right? That's what we can tell to some extent. But here's what's interesting. What's interesting is, from what we understand, again, I read that the cause of death was attributed to asphyxia in, due to inhalation of gasoline. Now, here's what's interesting. There appeared to be no edge weapon used, such as a knife. There appeared to be no projectile weapon used, such as a gun. Whatever happened to Bobby, and I believe at this point, just to be honest, that Bobby was murdered. I think it's pretty clear. I think so, too. Uh, the, yeah. the ruling of suicide makes absolutely no sense in light of, for one reason, the weird fact that I just mentioned to you, right? Uh, that he was soaking gasoline. Let's look at that. Uh, if we go back to that, we'll see that if you're going to commit suicide, most men that I'm aware of and most people who commit suicide don't go out of their way to use petroleum, oil, or gas, meaning gasoline, to commit suicide. It's usually not done, right? It's, this is the only case I've ever heard of somebody doing that. Right. Like it's pretty rare that I'm aware of. I mean, it would, it would have to be, in this case, it would be a one in a million type of way to end yourself. And so it doesn't make any sense to conclude that it's a suicide for the simple reasons, as I mentioned before. One, Fuller was in full rigor when he was found in the car and when police arrived. So, on, you know, they say that dead men don't tell tales, but also dead men don't drive blue Oldsmobiles. So it would have been impossible 
for Bobby to have been dead and driven the car back to his parking lot near his apartment. Right. It doesn't make sense. And then you have the certificate of death, which I'm looking at right here. It says accident, which like he accidentally killed himself through asphyxia of huffing gasoline. Just right. Well, eventually they had to change it from suicide to accident. Right. So it was changed eventually. The initial belief by the cops on the scene uh, by police, I mean, LAPD was that it was a suicide. Again, based on what I just told you. Again, using the lens of logic and using rationality, how can a dead man drive a blue Oldsmobile? How can somebody in full rigor mortis be able to drive the car back to their apartment? And why would they? Right. So what's the motive? Why would somebody want him dead? Mm. Good point. Um, this is the one, this is an aspect that's debated, Right because people have brought up various theories. Now, supposedly Bobby was involved with a young lady at the time by the name of Melody. Now, anyone who's looked into this case has probably seen an episode of East uh, Mysteries and Scandals, where supposedly this Melody who was involved with Fuller was interviewed um, under certain kinds of lighting, of course, but was interviewed, right? The belief was that this Melody was actually involved at the time with a boyfriend, had a boyfriend who was not connected. So the belief, theory number one is that Fuller was killed or by this jealous boyfriend or the jealous boyfriend had it arranged for him to be killed because he was messing around with his girlfriend, Melody. Right? That's one theory. And so you have the general mob aspect, which is another theory. And that relates to the music industry, right? Now, Bobby Fuller and the Bobby Fuller Four were signed to a guy called Bob Keen, who owned Delphi Records, I think also Mustang Records. So they were signed to that record label. And basically, um, Keen had signed a deal with um, Roulette Records which was owned by, uh, which was under the uh, control of a guy called Morris Levy. And that's where you start getting into the whole mob aspect, right? Where uh, Morris Levy was involved with certain, was reportedly involved with certain um, mob families. And a lot of these music companies, they, they look on surface like they're just businesses. A lot of these uh, places in Hollywood are run like a mob if they're not mob fronts. And there's no doubt. Well, these music companies right. are very rough, very <laughs> harsh. Well, here's what you got to understand. That's a whole other conversation. When I was doing um, research into Sam Cooke uh, last year, his death, I had to start looking into aspects of the music industry in terms of royalties and, and other business arrangements, publishing and so forth. And the amount of chicanery and the amount of double dealing and outright betrayal and sabotage in that industry, there's only one way to describe it, and that is not only diabolical, but another way to describe it is criminal. Yeah, oh, no question. There are I mean, stories before. of people it's in contracts industry. trying to get out, people yeah. who have had conflicts with their company, people getting shafted by their music company are, they are legion. They're legion. People are pit angry. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. So. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Um, well, it's not just legion. It's sort of um, boilerplate. It's a boilerplate part of the industry that you're going to get exploited and likely ripped off by labels, by companies, by managers, by individuals um, who will basically want to make sure. I mean, it's a longer conversation to have, but uh, basically but the way important, it's done. It's yeah. important in the context of this death because right. a lot of these guys are naive. They start wrangling and bad things happen. 
bad things happen. Another suspicious death in the music industry that I just remember was Elliot Smith, too. That's another young death. But there's so many. These guys are they're dealing with sharks. Some of these guys who run these companies are not, you know, they're not bad. They don't want their competitors to also get these business. They don't want to get the competitors to get the business opportunities. Somebody else might kill them, right? So well, right. Well, you're right that they're sharks, barracudas, and piranhas as well. <clears throat> but it is relevant. But it's a, it's a longer conversation, of course. But it is relevant here because Bobby was someone in his background. He was kind of a a guy who had uh, come up, played music very young as a kid, learning piano, was on drum to a great extent, and he had built his own studio, his own um, you know recording studio in his family's home in El Paso, Texas. And so, and he'd also started a club for teens, I believe, uh, where he could play, because he used to sneak out at night um, and basically look at, uh, go to clubs to watch, to uh, hear music when he was a teenager in high school. So Bobby was somebody who was not just a gigging musician. It was clear that he had a business interest, right? And so my understanding is before he died, that he was unhappy with a lot of what was going on in regards to his band. For one thing, he wanted to know about the money that was being spent to promote the records, the singles, right? And um, he wanted to more of an accounting, an accurate accounting, the monies was, that was being spent by either Bob Keen um, and Delphi Records, Mustang Records, to promote and to get the Bobby Four, uh, Bobby Fuller Four, and their music well known, and to get it out there to the audience. So he wanted more information about that. Um, again, greater accounting. But also, he also wanted, from what I understand, the scuttlebutt was that there was a meeting that was going to happen the day he was found. Right? They were supposed to meet Bobby Fuller and the Bobby Fuller Four. They were supposed to meet with, I think, the record label the company. And the talk was that Bobby was going to split the band up. That he was either... And that he really wanted to go back to El Paso and he wanted to maybe build a studio there and basically kind of produce music there and do his own thing, which is not unlike how musicians are doing it today. Basically, what you see today is that musicians often in their studios, in their homes, um, they mix, they record and mix their own albums and they put out their albums online. Um, right, so. Right. I don't know if Bobby was ahead of his time. It seemed that way. I don't I don't like the term ahead of my time ahead of it, you know, ahead of time or ahead of your time. I prefer that you were just on point. This is a guy who clearly understood that things were not going the way they should. Yes, the band was doing well, you know, they were performing a lot. In fact, that week that Bobby ended up dead. They had time off because they had been, you know, they had been on TV shows. They had been, uh, they had appeared in a movie called, I think, The Ghost in Invisible Bikini. They had a little, they were a band, you know, playing a tune, I guess. Um, so they were busy with a lot of uh, performing and promotion. <coughs> right. And so they got a time off. But Bobby was very clear that Bobby had very firm ideas about where he wanted to go in terms of his music and ideas about what should happen in regards to the music. So he wasn't happy with, I think, the financial end of the business in regards to his songs. Because he had, I think, a, a, a single or two that didn't do well, which he was unhappy with. So anytime that you have, <clears throat> I know, an artist who wants to be better briefed better informed and exert more control over the economic, financial, and business aspects. It's not unusual that something bad happens to them. It's not always the case, but it's not unusual that something bad happens to them. Right. Like I said, Sam Cook was somebody who was very involved business-wise in regards and wanted control over his music. And so when I look at Bobby Fuller, there's some similarities that are there. Right, no doubt. 
And a lot of these guys, there's st stories of harassment. I mean, you can call it like death row records. And some of these, I mean, they engage in incredible in, in, uh, harassment, you know, threats, all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, there's just crazy stuff. You could just do a whole book on suspicious deaths within the music industry. You know, people who really just want their own way. Or people who got shafted. Really just got shafted. Like, uh, Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I've noticed this. Like I said, I've talked about Sam Cooke. I've talked about Bobby Fuller. I've heard about other deaths. It's something about that industry where yeah. some people just end up paying a price. I believe related to the industry. I, I think, think that was right. the case here. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he's connected to the industry. Wanted independence, saw that he was a way out. He was at the top of his game, and somebody, you know, beat him up. And you know, maybe he got warned, but then it was too. His death that makes no sense as a suicide. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. It does not. Um, so yeah, there. Like I said, there were theories. Like I said, there was melody and the idea that she had a boyfriend that was related to the mob. There's the music industry aspect which is also mob-related. I, of course, do not believe that organized crime figures were involved in the death of Bobby Fuller because the way he ended up being found makes no sense. Mob hitmen don't douse their victims with gasoline and leave them in parked cars in apartment parking lots. It's very I mean, sloppy, that would be right? ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely sloppy. No professional hitman would ever do anything like this that I'm aware of. I'm not an expert on organized crime, but what I understand about professional hitmen or people in that line of work, there's no way that they would ever do anything. This would be too... It's just beyond amateurish. It's almost it's like a crime of passion, right? That somebody did something, got angry, he got beat up, he was killed, and then they had to figure out a way to to fix it. I've heard of stories actually in LA that some of the police and and this would not surprise me at all. This is a rumor, but the police in LA and the uh, medical examiner are both on the take. So they are given money. They actually have a stipend per year or per month that they take. And certain cases, you know, the the edges get you know fuzzy, right? Some of the cops don't mm -hmm. deal with certain cases. And you can see that how some of these Huge pedophile cases and things that happen in LA, they just go cover under the rug and the police do not prosecute. Police and prosecutors don't prosecute. So at least see, it's kind of like because it's a company town. It's a company town. Right. But it's interesting you bring that up because if you look at this case and what happened, the investigation in this case was non existent or almost non existent. Yeah, right. But what I understand, there was no dusting of fingerprints on the Oldsmobile. Um, I doubt they took any latent prints. Um, I certainly doubt that they did any other work in regard to find anything in regards to items beyond the gas can. And of course, the talk was reportedly that um, a officer had taken the gas can and thrown it out. I believe Bob Keane said that he had seen this because Bob Keane of Delphi Records had come over and he said he supposedly talked to a cop. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the Unsolved Mysteries segment and you look at the E! True Hollywood segment, the cop that throws the gasoline can away in that segment is clearly a plainclothes detective. In the E! True Hollywood, uh, in the E! Mysteries and Scandals, it's a, clearly a uniform, right? So... Mm -hmm. This story is kind of, it's, you know, I'm not quite sure. It's, I'm sure that, I'm sure it may be true. Um, but something about it seemed strange to me. That for a big city police de department like LAPD, it never made sense to me that some uniform would be allowed to go take a piece of evidence, even in a suicide, if they were going to label it that and go throw it away on the scene in a garbage can. That just struck me as odd. Again, this is what is reported. But, but, I, I, what? but I'm like, all they needed to do was take it 
and thrown away. If they wanted to get rid of it, they could have thrown it away somewhere else. Why would they need to do it on the scene there? That's one of the reasons that this case is so odd. Of course, the, the LAPD saw this as a suicide from the very beginning. No real investigation. And keep in mind that Bobby Fuller was a rising star. He was a minor celebrity. And they treated this case as if it was completely unimportant. Good point, yeah. I mean, it just shows you something fuzzy is going, something suspect or sketchy is going on. It's like LA Confidential. Right. Like, why are you treating it like this? Oh, yeah. I mean, you kind of wanted to have, they already had a preset outcome, probably. Right. Well, so. there is, of course, the insurance, right? Reportedly, that Bobby Fuller had an insurance policy that was taken out on him. So that's another aspect in regards to theories about his death. Do you know how big it was? Um, um, I heard, I heard $800,000. Wow. That's a lot. Right. For or at least wow. over a hundred thousand dollars. Right. So, um, I don't want to go too far with that, but, but clearly there was an insurance policy. Now, when you look at the insurance policy angle, that also is not surprising because it was changed, of course, from suicide to an accident, right? Right. In fact, I believe on a form, and this is shown whenever you see docu, you know, segments on Bobby Fuller or even on, on YouTube and some of these shows that do it, you see the question mark around accident and question mark around suicide. Right. Um, like other YouTube types have covered this story, right? Right, right. But... One of the things, again, again, that's another aspect. Was Bobby Fuller killed in regards to insurance payout? Now, we know this is what corporations do sometimes with employees. They take out secret insurance policies. And so when uh, an employee ends up dead, they get to collect. Right. So they're the beneficiary, right? Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's an interest, you know, that in and of itself is worth considering. Right. So you have, you know, the mob, you know, you have the boyfriend, you have the mob angle, you have insurance angle. And I think just the music industry angle, which is that they thought maybe that Bobby would be worth more dead than alive. Right. The, the, the truth is, is that some of the deaths of these mu musicians, they are worth more dead than alive. A lot of their music, I don't know if Bobby Fuller's the case, but all of these people, when they pass away, there's a spike in sales. There's a huge spike because people get nostalgic and they yep. want to buy and get all this stuff together. So when Prince dies, Michael Jackson dies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these guys, like Elvis and some of these other characters, they are an industry in death that, mm -hmm. you know, it's really something else. I mean, there's, there you have represent legal and marketing representation in death, which is... Uh, really right. something else right right so you've looked into the you, you're familiar with this case yourself you've heard about it i have I wanted I've to get, come yeah. yeah come across it in different books you've covered la and things like that so yeah the right. suspicious death now there's so many one suspicious of deaths in hollywood oh my gosh the whole place is replete with weird deaths and Crazy death. Yeah, sorry. There are a number of them. Now, I wanted to get your view of what is your take on Bobby? How do you, who do you think was behind his death? Um, I would say that he was probably killed by somebody who he was in a contractual <laughs> obligation. And I, my, this is my opinion. I would mm -hmm. say that would yeah. make the most sense to me because that would be the motive is that he's independent and somebody's seeing their cash cow, their golden goose leave and they might not have been happy about that they were thinking in their minds this guy's going to be with me for five or ten years i've got 10 hit singles coming out and you know this guy's gonna lay the golden egg for me and then he says i want to leave and that's happens like you said i mean that's kind of the theme of your talk is this happens all the time they get too mm -hmm. big and people get angry people don't like that Look at Cobain. Go look at Cobain and his negotiation and how he became more business savvy after the mega success of Nevermind. He started getting involved in all this stuff. And I mean, he shafted his own 
bandmates. So uh, Nova Selich and the other guy was uh, the drummer, right, from Foo Fighters. Um, he told he told them, "Yeah, you're getting elbowed out. I'm going. I'm taking half of everything because I write all the songs." So I mean, there's that'll, that'll make people angry. I'm not saying they were involved in his death. I'm just saying that right. These things well, are not the money in music is in yeah. The money in music is in publishing because of the royalties, the royalty structure. So he who writes the songs gets the royalties, the money, right? and yeah, and he who owns the songs, more importantly, gets the money. So you've got to be able to write the songs and own the catalog, and that's the problem. Artists don't always own their own catalog. They don't. I know. Of, I know of one story out there. Aerosmith. They don't own a lot of their original albums, and they fought to get them back, and they couldn't get it. Mm -hmm. The contract. They couldn't get out of an unconscionable contract. I would recommend to people, and I talked about this in the case of Sam Cooke. Look at someone called Alan Klein and Abco Records. Alan Klein is a notorious, notorious guy, an accountant who got involved in managing. And he's someone who owns the rights to Sam Cooke's music. Wow. And I believe also early Rolling Stones. I don't know if he still owns early Rolling Stone. And he got involved with Sam Cooke. He got involved with the Rolling Stones. He got involved with the Beatles. In fact, I think George Harrison put out some song. I don't know, it was something he was playing around with. Say, beware of Abco. George Harrison was right. He was right. When that's when I started looking into Sam Cooke and, and looking into Alan Klein, I realized he is the epitome of the rot of the music industry. That's a whole nother book. I mean, because I've heard the same thing. Credence Clearwater yeah, Revival had a problem. <laughs> Prince called himself a slave. Like he considered his yeah. contract. Like he thought. And I mean, that's a very vivid description. I mean, and super obviously, Prince is a total genius. I mean, off the charts. Mm -hmm. So, like, why he was producing music and doing it online? Yeah, he was. Yeah, I think he was a pioneer in selling. Producing, you know, his own albums and selling them online years ago, which is now pretty standard for, I believe, musicians, uh, people that produce, you know, their own works, producing albums and so forth. But these are these are interesting. They actually teach like uh, one of the music contracts. Somebody, a very sharp operator came in and offered the fall after Jimi Hendrix was killed, according to some people. Um very sharp operator came in and offered the father a lump sum for the rights to Jimi Hendrix's amount. And I, I think at that time it was a considerable sum, but the father wasn't that sophisticated. And mm -hmm. he thought, okay, this is good. I'm going to take the two. I, I can't remember. They teach this in law school because it's one of those rare cases where a contract gets overturned due to unconscionability. And so this sharp op, I can't remember the guy's name, got away with uh, this poor father. I think his dad was, wasn't educated and to, and walked off with something worth millions like that over time, the copyright would have mm -hmm. provided and has provided millions. But the judge to his credit said, no, you cannot have this contract without a lawyer and stuff like that. So you're giving the, so the, the Jimi Hendrix's material rightly sits with his family today instead of. Thank some goodness. Shark, Thank yeah, goodness. Some shark. Yeah. Yeah. That's one I of the rare cases. Because Aerosmith fought with this one guy, I can't remember, just, just vicious court battles, and they never got their their some of this stuff like sweet emotion back. They never got ownership back. Jeez. <laughs> after after again, I'm not an attorney. I know you are or were, I should say. Um, I am. I'm a just a I'm non-practicing member. I'm still an attorney. Still a member of the state bar of yeah. California. Right. I'm in good standing. <laughs> I'm a good standing yeah. member I, I, of the state bar of California. It, Right. Well, I'm not. I'm no longer a journalist, but people still call me one. <laughs> so I guess I can understand that. Uh, but yeah, this is something I didn't want to get too far into this area. But even though it's very relevant here, but that whole music industry, the business aspect, you know, mechanical royalties and other types of royalties, um, the 
the uh, ownership of catalogs, um, all of this, these business aspects. In the case of Bobby Fuller, he wanted stricter accounting as to what right. the amount of money was being spent to promote the records, because clearly Bobby and his bandmates weren't getting them. And um, he had more of a, obviously he was somebody who wanted control over his music and control over his, his money, affairs. Right. Not just money. Well, I mean, but I think affairs. it's. I think you. I think it goes back. It's very important this control. I heard that the lead singer of NXS. This is another suspicious death. Dead in a bathroom, hanging. Oh, Michael Hutchins. Yeah, he had no money in his account, and there's a lot of jealousy. In I mean, there's jealousy in the world. Like people get jealous of other people's success or fame that they may want to have. But some of this backstab, like you said, some of this backstabbing and stuff. Michael Hutchins. Hutchins had like. $35,000 in the account. So somebody had, this is my rumor. I, I have to go back and look at the facts, but okay. the rumor was that he had been looted. So it looked, I would say in my analysis of his death, it was take the money and then kill him off like that. Well, I understand that Marvin Gaye was living, had to move in with his dad. Right. Yeah. That's with, how he died, who, right? His dad killed right. him. Right. His dad killed him. That was... Because you know, Motown had all the whole rights, right? yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Well, when you yeah. deal with music, it's whoever, like I said, he who writes the songs makes the money. And he who owns the songs and the catalogs makes even more money. Um, and that's what it really is, is about ownership of lab basically your labor as a songwriter and your labor as a musician, and who owns it. Because songs get played, and then, of course, you have streaming, right? You have Apple, you have Spotify, you have all these streaming places. Go ahead. No, but you're right. I mean, but I think you. I think it's the same, kind of coming back to the same theme, which is people got to watch out. These young people are very naive. They think that they're dealing with a friend who's going to help them in the industry, and I know how to get you produced, and they just get worked. They're all not even some of these guys without business savvy. I heard that like, I mean, this is another story. The House of the Rising Sun, one of the band members ran off with the copyright and didn't give the other guys any ownership of that. And so they just sang it and never made any money out of it. I mean, so that's played forever. So one guy's like getting all of the majority, the, the king's share of that song. I mean, it just goes mm -hmm. on and on. I heard the Queen was the same way that Freddie Mercury was very, he understood he was very savvy. So he would always try to wrangle ownership of the song from the other band members because he knew the long, he understood the business element of like a hit song. So, mm -hmm. Well, that's what's going to make you money. I mean, it's different for me. I, I, as somebody who's written articles and pieces and other materials for a living, I'm so glad I'm not a songwriter. I mean, I know a number, you know, a number of them do very well, but it's a crapshoot, really, in that industry. And I'm, I, my feeling is I'd rather get my money up front. I'd rather write magazine pieces and newspaper articles and get my money up front than write some song and get cheated out of it by some crooked, no-good manager or record company owner or major corporate label. Right. Um, yeah, word about... Uh... 70 minutes right now. I'm going to have to excise some of that other earlier audio, which was very strange. That's probably the first time somebody hasn't been able to hear my voice without it being, I can tell it's not on mute. So whatever, that was very odd. But um, is there anything, I mean, really interesting conversation. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Obviously you have a it, it got into a larger conversation. Broad, let me finish what I'm talking. You have a very broad range of information. Lots, tons of background, but uh, for people who haven't heard your background, where can they find your other work? And then can you add kind of your social media or contact information? Sure. Um, well, uh, people can find me on Twitter at Critic Inc. That's uh, C-R-I-T-I-C-I-N-C uh, at Critic Incorporated or at Critic Inc. on Twitter. And I'm also on Facebook under my name, Albert Lanier. Um, uh, I'm technically also on TikTok, <laughs> um, at Imperious Reader, 
So, uh, yeah, so choice. on TikTok, I do, yeah, I do a uh, series there called From the Freelancer, like short little videos about being freelancer, you know, different aspects of being a freelancer. Um, yeah, and people, so people want to see me there. They can go to TikTok at Imperious Reader, at Facebook under my name, Albert Lanier, at Critic Incorporated. Uh, I'm also technically on YouTube. Um, so I have a channel, um, under the out show. So that's my channel on thus far. I may do a channel under my own name, but the out show is my channel this far. And I have like maybe three formats. One is the writer's guide, which is about writing, uh, aspects of being a writer. One is called inside job, which is a news and opinion. And the other is, uh, the live show where I, deal with literature film and tv uh, and i analyze different aspects they're in and it's just me on youtube you know very simple nothing right it's on. not a youtube you can, big budget YouTube show right and you can also be heard on chuckle chelly the chuckle chelly effect right so you've done some interviews for him right i did that show i did his show he was on i don't know if he's still on tnt radio but I did a show on TNT radio and I've been on the Ocelli event. Yeah. And I'm on yeah, some think, other show. I don't think he's on there anymore. I think that was a short lived oh. uh, okay. relationship is my understanding, but I, I have to oh, check that out okay. with him. Okay. But again, uh, it's uh, Albert Lanier, L-A-N-I-E-R. And I will put the links to your social media in the show notes. And we talked about the strange death of an unfortunate death of Bobby Fuller. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right, Stephen.